Whether it's dismantling the fossil fuel industry, creating a solar-powered utopia, or simply desiring to hear more birds in the sky than planes, this is Idealistically, a podcast where we discuss what we would idealistically want in an ideal world. Hello and welcome back for all you wonderful listeners who have made it to episode three of the podcast. Hooray! I suppose you could say that this podcast is a hopeful one. It's got room for joy and for hope and obviously imagining the world that we all want to live in. However, I never want that to take away from the reality of the times that we're living in. And although the podcast is not really like time specific, you can hopefully listen to it at any point at any time. To me, it's always been really important to acknowledge the ups and downs that come with understanding the reality of a lot of the issues that I might be discussing in this podcast with my guests. And recently, my whatever you want to call it, as we will discuss in this episode, anxiety has been quite bad recently. I've had a couple of climate cries. I've had to take a breather. I've felt it in my body. I've you know, on top of general life stress, like it's been a lot. And to me, it's really important to actually sometimes lean into that and to acknowledge it and to recognize that it is really hard to carry sometimes. And so I guess I want to encourage anyone who is feeling a bit overwhelmed by the state of the world, wherever you are, whatever's affecting you or your communities to actually take the time to like listen to yourself. And, you know, maybe if you haven't done that yet, like don't listen to this podcast episode yet, go and take that time for yourself. And maybe if you have done that, then just be really conscious of it going forward. And hopefully this conversation will be a bit of a respite from it. I'm going to be talking to another good friend of mine in this episode, Tori Choi. And we do go a little bit deeper into some of these heavier topics, but I think it's really important to do that and to not shy away from it. Tori has like a really calming, lovely presence. So hopefully that will shine through and it will end up being quite a comforting conversation. And, you know, by the end of it, we'll have imagined some new things. And yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge that and to not go straight into hopeful imagination without recognizing that sometimes that's actually really hard to do. So without further ado, I'm going to jump straight in and we're going to get Tori to introduce themselves. I am Tori Choi. I use she, they pronouns. I'm based in Bristol in the UK. I'm originally from Hong Kong, however. I am a climate justice activist and organiser. And yeah, I'm really, really happy to be on the podcast with you, Dolly. Thank you so much for joining me. And um, I've realised that with this podcast and the kind of idea behind it, we kind of just jump straight in in the deep end. But I kind of, I love that part of it. Um, So do you currently find it easy to envision an ideal world? Oh, you know, it really depends on my mood that particular day. I'm sure we'll get to this in a bit. But as you know, I struggle quite a lot with my mental health and I have good days and bad days and all of those things in between. So it really depends on how I'm feeling that particular day or if I'm kind of knee deep in organising. I'm not 
gonna lie at the moment just kind of seeing all the conflict that's happening around the world in you know Palestine and in Colombia for instance it it feels quite overwhelming and that can often I think reaffirm in some ways that conflict seems to be ever present uh, and that's quite a hard thing to I guess come to terms with when I'm trying to feel optimistic but on days where I feel slightly more hopeful you know for instance when I'm kind of doing organizing and things come together and then there are concrete results I feel really optimistic about trying to achieve a semblance of climate justice uh, but yeah I think at the moment I'm feeling a bit heavy about the world. Yeah that's totally fair I think it can feel quite hard to like break out of the thought pattern that all of this terrible stuff is like inevitable and that you know it has always happened and it always will happen um but hopefully hopefully that's not the case but it's totally like valid to to sit with that feeling I think and and yeah yeah it's it's so funny because the gut reaction for me is to feel guilty for saying stuff like that because I think a lot of the time people look to activists to be their source of hope which you know famously I kind of uh, think a lot of activists condemn especially from the older generation being like you're our hope and it's like no help us <laughs> um but for me it's just like I mean uh I I don't sugarcoat a lot of things I'm very real about stuff it's not to say I don't have hope because I, I feel like activists are inherently optimistic we talk about such gloomy things but you're not going to be doing this work unless you believe in some better alternative out there but it's just a matter of yeah as you say sitting with these feelings kind of acknowledging where you're at and and then eventually finding ways to work around that and cracking on with it I suppose yeah definitely and like you say like activists have to kind of have a semblance of hope because you, you know you're doing it because you believe there's a possibility that things could change it's not a guarantee but I think that possibility is what drives a lot of people leading on from that and this can be very open whatever comes to mind really just kind of I guess drawing from like instinct what is the first thing that comes to mind when you envision your ideal world oh my gosh I you know it's it's really interesting that you ask this because one of the things that I did when I was part of sale to the cop for those of you who don't know it was a project that I participated in with European youth sailing to the climate conference cop 25 and on the boat we had a think tank and the think tank was basically some sort of space where we could brainstorm different policy ideas, think about um, better futures and so on and so forth. And one of the exercises that we did was imagining a utopia. And it was really interesting because at the time, I think I was a lot more optimistic or perhaps I just hadn't really settled into the full breadth of what it meant to be a climate justice activist, whatever that looks like. Uh, and I thought, well, actually the world's not that bad is it uh, and it's it's not that it's bad now it's just so much more nuanced than I had the capacity to understand back then so now when I think about an ideal world for me so much of it revolves around people and so much of it revolves around rights from all different justice issues I mean I think that's 
quintessential to climate justice activism is, is you have to think about these intersecting systems. Whereas before I'd kind of be like, ah, oh, yes, all the carbon in the atmosphere has been dealt with and <laughs> all of this really sort of, uh, I mean, one could say traditional way of looking. I want to say traditional only because that's quite a Eurocentric traditional belief there that we have to be looking at carbon parts per million, uh, but, you know, not really thinking about people and exploitation of people if it means i guess dealing with that issue people don't really care so much if they exploit others in the process and that's kind of where climate justice comes into the fore so yeah i think now it's it's more about having a space where people are listened to where we uplift marginalized people where there are open dialogues where people dismantle systems of oppression to be honest, people are knowledgeable and understand what we mean by systems of oppression. That, you know, that there is this, I mean, I'm I'm quite obviously more of a socialist than I am like quite right wing. Um, so for me, a large part of how I envision society is redistribution of wealth, whether wealth is something that we even have as a currency anymore. Um, we're not defining people by these capitalistic ideals that, you know, thrive off ableism and homophobia and sexism and racism um so it's about dismantling those things that harm everybody that's the thing it harms everybody um some profit off it more than others obviously but there is harm enacted on all beings at the end of the day oh just hearing you like say all of that like gives me chills of like oh one day <laughs> one day we'll get there one day. <laughs> um and also i think that point about kind of becoming to realize you're coming to realize it's you know about people too I think that is often the turning point in people's kind of journey of understanding like sustainability and like caring for the planet it's like that's that's a very base level understanding of it it's when we start realizing hang on actually what we're doing we're not just talking about planting more trees we're talking about ensuring that people are able to live healthy and happy lives. Total disclaimer, just want to put it out there. Everyone's on a journey and I started my journey with a particular way of thinking activism uh, was meant to be. And, and that's not to say that it was quote unquote wrong per se, but it wasn't nuanced enough. It wasn't inclusive enough. It wasn't aware of the complexities of living in this world. And I think it's so important to actually lean into these conversations because I think far too often people are just like oh well you know let's just start with the positives and just focus on solutions that you know are very very simple and straightforward let's not overcomplicate things because far too often climate justice activists and those who advocate for social equality are told that they're overcomplicating things that they're making things too muddy and too heavy but the reality is you're not gonna dismantle these problems which are core issues unless you lean in unless you really start you know taking all of this in and then trying to pick it apart the thing about overcomplication is like we lead we lead really complicated lives and to like act as if we don't like just ignores the reality of just humanity in itself yeah it's like people who say i don't see color and it's just like okay we know that these racial categories for instance are entirely fictitious on the basis of how this white supremacist society has has created them but you can't begin to dismantle that unless you see 
people's humanities in the way that they have been prescribed labels by other people. Um, so it's a really complex thing, right? Because for instance, uh, I would love to live in a world where we're not seeing people on the basis of ascribing anecdotes of power and worth on their race. But until we start to acknowledge that there are these differences or these striations of harm that are happening to different people, we're not gonna be able to kind of like pick that apart and, and address the injustices. Because more often than not, the people who say, I don't see colour, or people who, regardless of being well-meaning, they enact acts of harm, I would say, without even realising. And, and that's the problem. It's because it's so surreptitious and just like so underlying in society. Yeah, basically we can't dismantle these issues, these institutions, all these, these big things without actually acknowledging they exist and that they do cause harm. So on maybe a lighter note, I don't know, what would you keep from the current world for your ideal version? And again, whatever comes to mind. Oh, the power of community organising. You know, time and time again, we see change being enacted uh, on the ground a lot of the time. Obviously, top down change is something that we uh, unfortunately have to work around in this system. But more often than not, you see the power of communities coming together, the power of people on the ground, often the most marginalized people, essentially crafting the future that we we inhabit because of the fact that, you know, they're trying to create a better world for all. I think this is the common misconception is that, you know, when the world's most marginalized campaign, there is this um, perhaps belief that they are creating a world only for them but actually everyone benefits when the world's most marginalized campaign for a just future. And so that's something that I would like to see kind of continue in an ideal world where we are having these people on the ground driving change because I feel like they see it as it is. And I don't want to get to a situation where say for instance, everything was some sort of utopia. We got kind of complacent with where we were and we're like, oh yes, everything's fine now. The thing is, the world will always have its ups and downs. It's about making sure that we're accountable. And I feel like while people on the ground should not be the reason for being accountable, they are definitely people that we should listen to and honour. And I think that's why I like the idea previously with kind of XR talking about a citizens assembly, for instance, and having organisers be part of the conversation. Yeah, and I've been part of like people's assemblies so for anyone who doesn't know what that is it's basically like a form of like being able to decide on things in a really equal and fair way with really clear communication and it is a really powerful way of just even deciding on very small things like within protest like should we move to this certain location and things like that and it it enables people's voices to be heard more clearly I think um and on that and like small scale stuff. I was actually speaking to a friend recently who was talking about how they were starting like a street WhatsApp for where they live. And they realized like actually doing things at that very micro level, like can help us get to the bigger stuff. Because if you think within a community, you can kind of mobilize just one street. Well, that's still like, I don't know, it could be like 30, 40 people. But then once you've got that and you've got that really solid, that can then create a ripple effect. 
that's amazing and I, I completely agree with you there it's 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 quite interesting because you know the organizing space that I occupy I'm not going to say that it's not um community based or that it's not uh how should I say that it's not kind of focused on small groups of people that I can engage with all the time I've come to realize that my strength in this movement is about facilitating connections and trying to connect people to opportunities and so on and so forth and I think it's it's also so important to recognize that everyone has a different role to play in this movement whether you are a facilitator whether you are an organizer on the ground whether you are somebody who you know uh, does art and social media like everyone has a role to play uh, and it's super important to honor that and know that there's a collective power that we have when we all w- work together basically yeah I, I that's something that I've really been taking to heart especially over this past year with the pandemic and like forms of activism kind of having to change and adapt to that is the idea of like really honing in on your skills and what is already important to you and using that for our movements there was a really great resource that was online created by um Dr Yana Elizabeth and Mary Hegler which was basically like um these sort of questions that you can ask yourself as to how f- to find your role in the climate movement. And, you know, they were quite, you know, rudimentary questions like, what brings you happiness and joy? Like, what are you good at? Um, what are your identities? Like, what what means a lot to you as a person and how you identify? And using these guiding questions to kind of figure out where you can fit in this network of people was, I think it's a great place to start for anyone who's kind of looking to get into this movement and wants to be part of something bigger. And at the end of the day, like, what are we fighting for if we're not fighting to to protect the things that we already love? Exactly. I highly doubt big oil bosses love fossil fuels. (laughs) I mean, they might do, in which case that's slightly psychopathic and weird. Um, But, you know. Yeah, just bathing in that oil, baby. So you did actually already touch on this, which is great because it's a nice segue. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about um, Sail to Cop and like your time with that? Yeah, of course. So it's really interesting because there are actually like two phases to the project almost. So Sail to the Cop was the um, project taking European youth to the UN Climate Conference in Chile, COP25, which then got relocated to Madrid. So that was interesting. And a lot of that focused on uh, sustainable travel and campaigning for, you know, um, aviation to be accounted for in what we call nationally determined contributions or NDCs, because they weren't. Uh, And that was really problematic considering the aviation industry has such a huge impact on the climate Uh, and they're not being accountable for it, and it's projected to grow. So it was kind of like, how do we, through a climate justice lens, maintain that, you know, we are ensuring that marginalised people do not get harmed in the process, that these industries are acknowledging um, that they're contributing to the climate crisis, and so on and so forth. So that project, because we didn't end up getting to Chile, because it was relocated, we worked remotely on the island of Martinique for two weeks during COP25. And then the final destination was actually Cartagena in Colombia. And it was during that time in Colombia where we organised the inverse of the project. So there were about three, four, maybe five of us in and out who decided from 
sailed to the COP that we wanted to start a new project called Sail for Climate Action. And it was so, 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 so important in doing this, but actually we reached out to Latin American and Caribbean youth to help organize this project with us. And then we found an amazing group of participants and in the space of like three-ish months, we somehow managed to raise the funds to charter the sailboat back to Europe uh, with lots of different activists and folks who were championing the climate justice message and also wanting to unite climate movements beyond their own nations. So it was a really, really amazing project. But of course, COVID happened. Yay. <laughs> and then after COVID, we went virtual and we did lots of capacity building workshops online, most notably with um, the German ministry and an organization called Klima Delegation, um, who are a yeah German youth climate organization. So that was really awesome. Uh, and now we're planning the road to COP26, which is going to be interesting. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. You know, the yeah. U- the, just, you know, the UK hosting mm-hmm. COP. Great. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for like breaking that down. I am always like in awe of just how well you organize and that you are really like putting most effective people like at the forefront. It pushes me to do better within my own work for that. That's really kind, Charlie, but I think it's so important for me to also say that like there was such an amazing group of people. And I think this is kind of something that I really try and reiterate within different spaces is that there are all these amazing people that I've worked with, but they aren't online really. Like they are, but they aren't. And it's just like the amount of centering that I'll get for this project over the people who work so hard on it as well. It's just like, it's, I think it's, it's the power of social media, right? And it's also the power of communications. Um, so I'm always super, super, yeah, in awe of, of the people that I worked with and, and often try and make sure that, you know, they get they get the, the praise too for all the amazing work that they've done. A big reminder to anyone listening that so much work within activism and movement spaces does not go on social media (laughs) like it is actually most of it I would say I don't know if you agree is so incredibly boring and dull like in terms of actually coordinating stuff and no one's gonna post about that or make it a a big deal on social media because it's just it's not exciting (laughs) honestly I you know I've been having these dilemmas in my mind for a long time because so much of what I like to do is organizing and social media is something that is is a you know a networking platform a communications platform some way of mobilizing people for different causes but i kept saying to myself for a while over the pandemic i wish there was a social media not social media per se but some sort of platform dedicated to organizers so that there could be like effective communication of what we're doing but it i don't know maybe i'm just overcomplicating things but there was a part of me that i guess was kind of frustrated with the nature of activism sometimes being quite performative and spotlighting people time and time again who have the luxury and dare I say just the privilege I guess to be on a platform like Instagram and engaging people um I don't know what the answer is unfortunately but I think the answer for the time being is for us to just yeah be aware of the fact that organizing takes place behind the scenes and to encourage anybody who's kind of really interested in climate activism to really tap into their communities and see how they can assist in these spaces 
Yeah. I mean, I didn't even feel really ready to call myself an activist, so to speak, until I had joined those communities and like was actually doing organizing because then it was like, oh, actually, this is it's not to say that is exactly what activism is. It means a different thing to everyone. Um, But yeah, that's what felt best to me. I think it's going to be yeah quite useful to also throw in there that, you know, I've, I've spoken about this with Michaela and Michaela's Michaela Loach has also spoken about this but so many people are activists but choose not to call themselves activists and I know so much of it is like how you choose to identify and what's important to you but actually at the end of the day activism is low-hanging fruit like I I mean that in in a really nice way if 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 that comes across like that then but in essence, activism is when you try and enact social and political change. And so many people enact that, whether it is through social media, whether it is in their communities, like so many people do it. So many people are activists. And the problem isn't necessarily that, you know, you have to be a certain type of way in order to be an activist. It's that there are certain people within activist spheres who benefit off the performance of activism as opposed to kind of directing that energy into their communities. So that's why I say that activism is low-hanging fruit. Like everyone and anyone can be an activist, which is great. Uh, and it's it's kind of similar to this conversation, as I mentioned, that I had with Michaela, where it's like, okay, to get into activism is really easy, but we have to have a standard that we kind of reach and maintain in order to make sure that we are centering most effective people in areas that we are actually getting the work done and so on and so forth. So I don't, you know... I, I don't feel like the activist police in that I, I don't go, how dare they call themselves an activist? Because uh, they are doing activism. But it's about recognising the inequalities within activism. That's where I think the real nuance is. Yeah. And uh, I'll give you a little a shout out. If you want more on like being an activist and maybe being a bad activist, then you can go check out the Bad Activist Collective, which is notorious Wow. What have you kind of learned from those experiences and working with different types of people to help influence your vision for the future? I mean, besides kind of learning some really awesome facilitation techniques, because it takes a lot of, um, I don't know, I don't want to say brain power, but like the ability to compartmentalise and organise and do logistics. It's it's a really complicated thing. And I think when you're planning a project that big, you really realise how important it is for everyone to have a very distinct role and collaborate. Um, so I learned a lot of things about, you know, proposals and planning and budgets and financing and capacity building and all of these things, which to me were initially kind of like buzzwords and stuff I didn't really know how to do. I'd always been an actor within people who had facilitated programmes being an organizer and someone who's facilitated a program really really taught me the importance of all of these different things that I knew nothing about before and also has taught me a lot about the limits and you know the legality of certain things and like working around the system that's already in place you know we can all dream about these things that we want to do but we do have limits unfortunately within the system that we're in and unfortunately a lot of these limitations are highly um intellectualized and highly inaccessible to a lot of people because they don't have the knowledge and the insight uh, and so I learned a lot about that and that's something that I will never take for granted again but insofar kind of in a more abstract sense and and holistically 
this project really taught me the importance of campaigning for spaces which need to be just and equal. I think far too often, you know, there are activists, including myself at the time with the Sale to the Cop project, the optics of it, it just wasn't on, you know, like the, the team did an incredible job of facilitating it, but I was like one of three or four people of color on the boat, four, four people of color, yeah. I was one of four people of color out of like 36. And all of us came from a background privileged enough to be able to sail across the Atlantic Ocean, which is already a very contentious thing to do if you're European sailing across the ocean to Latin America. It's just like, how did nobody kind of like question the optics of that to the extent that I'm doing now, you know? Um, And I think doing that project maybe had kind of been a bit of a blueprint for self for climate action but it was actually an opportunity to rewrite what self for climate action was and like what it should be what climate justice should be if that makes any sense um and i think also when you meet the people that you know you work with from all of these different backgrounds you realize how much of this crisis is rooted in eurocentricity <laughs> Um, how much of it is rooted in not listening to people, how much of it is rooted in lack of representation, how much of it is rooted in gatekeeping and not giving people the opportunity to have their voices heard. Um, And I think that was probably the most important aspect of this project is, yeah, furthering my understanding of that and seeing where there were similarity and commonality in the struggle I, I really respect the fact that you can like take the time to reflect in that way and I, I also had the privilege of, of being a certain type of activist in a way where I wasn't subject to um, accountability and nuance and criticism in a way that other people would be and that's a huge privilege and so it's a journey that I was on on my own and I mean, dare I say, if I'd been kind of thinking about this a lot sooner, I'd probably be a much better activist earlier on. Um, (laughs) But, you know, here we are. And yeah, I think it's a journey and I'm constantly growing and constantly learning. So another thing that you focus quite a lot on um, within your work is like climate anxiety and mental health. Um, and if you feel comfortable talking about that, that would be great because I'd love, I'd love to hear from you about that. And yeah, I was just wondering how you see we can sort of better the conversation around climate anxiety and mental health um, in order to lead us to a safer and healthier world. And I'll just like add on that you have made me like really aware of the sort of language um, used around like climate anxiety, especially around like marginalized people and people who are like on the front lines of like climate disaster and stuff who have already experienced trauma. So it's not just a case of like, I feel a bit sad because I saw like polar bears are going extinct. It's like, um, there was like a hurricane that went through our community and like we're trying to pick up the pieces. There are two very different things. Um, So yeah, it would be great to just hear more about that. It's an interesting one because I'm somebody, as I've mentioned, who thinks a lot about mental health in part because I suffer from quite ill mental health a lot of the time. Um, A lot of it results from trauma and probably natural predispositions to ill mental health. But also the world around me, I just find it quite overwhelming and I'm deeply, 
deeply sensitive person. You know, I'm the kind of person that takes one sip of coffee and I'm like, and I'm the kind of person that gets like less than uh, my normal amount of sleep and I'm, you know, a bit wobbly the next day. So my body is sensitive in all kinds of ways. And, you know, this definitely relates to my emotions. And for the longest time, sensitivity was something that I demonized about myself. And I've began to realize that it's a superpower. And in kind of doing so, it's made me really question the optics of different mental health struggles and the way that they are continuously advocating for people who usually have the most privilege. Um, Even just thinking about your mental health in such depth can be a a privilege sometime as well. So when I was thinking about eco-anxiety, a lot of the time, you know, when we were looking at mainstream conversations about eco-anxiety, it was centering people who were kind of saying the same things over and over again. People who, I mean, compared to frontline activists, probably weren't enduring the hardest aspects of the climate crisis. And so it just made me realise how much eco-anxiety was another kind of Eurocentric term that we've coined to centre people who are least affected. Um, That's not to say that people's mental health and the climate crisis isn't important because it's so important to have these conversations, so important to talk about our mental health. It's to ask us to kind of look inwards and be like, okay, well, if it's bad for us, it's bad for other people and these people are being affected by quote unquote what we call eco-anxiety how can we effectively dismantle this mental health crisis um without you know prioritizing people who are on the front lines the thing is we can't uh i think that's kind of the principle of climate justice right is you have to go to the core of all of these issues And I always say that mental health care is much more beyond just, you know, having a bath or doing some yoga. Yes. (laughs) So so on and so forth. Um, For me, mental health care is, you know, it is like obviously taking care of your body and your mind approximately. It's also about dismantling these systems of oppression that harm people. And I'm actually writing a lot about eco-anxiety at the moment. Um, And I've I've kind of picked apart the term. It's, It's strange because, you know... It's become the mainstream term, um, but I feel like the name in itself lacks the nuance to describe the complexity of eco-anxiety. Uh, I'm using the term, see, it's, it's such an easy thing to refer to. Um, it, it really doesn't encompass the complexity of mental health. It doesn't encompass the sort of, I guess, different emotions that people feel, rage, grief, depression, and so on and so forth. I know that the term eco-anxiety has been employed as an umbrella, but just as a term, it doesn't really work well for me personally. Um, And then also all of these ascribed notions of privilege and Eurocentricity to it have prompted me to kind of look for another term that I identify with more, which is environmental health and It's interesting because the way that I've referred to it visually is there are parentheses or brackets around environ. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of emphasizing that the two together, the environment and our mental health are one and the same, but that there needs to be a recognition that, you know, you can't really dissect the two, but the parentheses were there just to show people that there is a mental aspect to environmental health. Um, so I'm trying to adopt that as a way that I talk about 
what we call eco-anxiety and climate grief. Because I also argue that it's beyond quote unquote, the climate and the physical manifestations of this crisis. It is very much rooted in racial justice. It is rooted in social justice, um, all forms of justice, basically, in searching for equality. So the way that I think about my environmental health is one which recognises the interconnectedness of the social and environments as being social as well. So yeah, end of spiel. (laughs) No, it was a good spiel. Um, I was just thinking if I were to look back a few years ago and someone would have said to me like mental health is like related to the climate crisis or like capitalism I would have been like what but it's just as with so many of these things like it is because our lives are structured around these systems our lives are affected by these systems our lives are are touched by them and so you know if someone's living a nine to five job struggling to meet and meet like their mental health will be tied to that. And I think that, yeah, it's, it's, you just really can't separate any of these issues. You really can't separate them. And I think, you know, coming to terms with my mental health and understanding how much of my diagnoses are related to trauma and how much of those traumas stem from systems of oppression that have been enacted, you know, valuing certain lives over other, others has meant that so so many of these traumas are as a result of that. Yeah, some people can be dickheads and treat you like crap and that can enact trauma, but I'm I'm very much like a, a, a deep thinker about where things have harmed me and how I've been harmed and trying to make sense of them all. And I've come to realize that so much of it does come from capitalism. Uh, so much of it does come from the patriarchy. So much of it does come from like gender violence and homophobia and you know, ableism as well, which are all so in tandem with capitalism. So for me, when I think about my mental health, I'm really like strongly thinking about all of these systems of oppression and encouraging the discourse as well around quote unquote eco-anxiety to be more than just the physical environment, but to realise that say racial battle fatigue is eco-anxiety. And I think there we go. The kind of answer is dismantling all of these things is what will lead us to a healthier world where we don't have to be under such stress or experience such trauma because those systems would have fallen down and hopefully we've created something new and beautiful. Speaking of creating, um, you're also a creative person. You're very... paint wonderful pieces <laughs> you create wonderful jewelry that i often wear when i want to feel fancy um <laughs> thanks dolls so this is i know this might be quite a simple question but um how does creativity help you envision a better world oh my gosh i love this question so much uh in part because i genuinely think that every climate activist has to be creative to some degree because it's about Ooh. envisioning this better world. And, I, and I, I'm and i not going to be able to recite this uh, quote word for word. I again think it was Mary Hegler who was saying that you have to fall in love with the creativity of the solutions for the climate crisis. Yeah, I think that's... Does that ring a bell? Yeah, that's pretty close. If it's not spot on, I'll yeah. be amazed. <laughs> yeah, and when I read that, I was like, oh, damn, this is so true, you know? And thinking that 
if you are in this space, you have to be creative to some degree, not just in the sort of proximal things that you do, like, you know, you're an amazing artist, but I also imagine that a lot of that creativity ties into this urge to fight for a better world and know that something else might be possible. And so I think that being able to imagine something beyond what's already known is one of the best superpowers you can have. And I think I think all humans are innately creative, but the problem is the world that we live in has fostered a sense of worth, depending on whether people are creative. Do you know what I mean? It just feels like this world profits are people who don't challenge the status quo, people who don't try and innovate and dismantle systems of harm. It's almost like if you keep in line, things will be better. And I'm not including tech bros in that creative. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, innovation they all Startup have life. they all have their time and a place sorry elon musk <laughs> i am declaring this a um elon musk fanboy free zone thank you there we go <laughs> just making that very clear no billionaires allowed <laughs> yeah oh i've just uh i've just lost a lot of money when elon musk asked me to be on his my podcast but that's fine we're not <laughs> we're not doing it for that are we <laughs> no not at all On another lighter note, and again, be silly with this if you want, although you can also be meaningful. Uh, previous guest was had quite a deep, meaningful answer to this, but whatever, again, comes to mind. Um, you can embrace the bad activist within you. Um, it can be a high-tech dream that Elon Musk might enjoy. What would you invent? So is this on the basis that I had one token to invent something, or is it like a nefarious, infinite stream of possibilities oh gosh you've got me there um i'm gonna say you've got one token and it can be anything and you don't even have to know how it would be possible wow so in that case i would be like okay well i've got to use it for the greater good because if i was just like ah oh, yes i am going to create uh, an infinite dispensary of candy for myself i don't even really like candy that much to be honest so that would be wasted uh, but you get the point so oof, something that would benefit people oh my god you know for the climate crisis so often we're kind of focusing on the proximal solution of like okay we need to stop polluting the earth and we need to get carbon out of the atmosphere and all of these tech solutions that people too when it's just like we got trees and we've got renewable energy so i wouldn't want to create a machine that sucks all the carbon out of the atmosphere because that would just be lazy not lazy you know obviously i don't want people to suffer but i don't want the tech people to just be like, ah, yes, we can continue to exploit people and continue to pollute and this machine will tidy everything up. So something that obviously balances the carbon in the atmosphere, but also liberates and activates and uh, finds a way of ensuring equality. It, I don't even know what that would look like. It sounds like a wonderful social justice magic wand. Yeah. Just oh my god, wave yeah. it across the planet <gasps> and voila. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. But then I'd be so afraid for it to be in bad hands. So oh maybe it has like a sort of gauge oh wow. for people who are using it not for personal gain. 
Maybe there's only... Like, oh, gosh. I was about like to say... the Elder Wand. <laughs> I was about to say only one person could use it, but then that's not very, like, collective. No. 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 We don't and want I one person. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be somebody who was in charge of that either. That's, A, a lot of responsibility. And, like, I think the beauty... Um, not beauty per se, but just, like, being an activist who advocates for justice is very it's very very important that you don't think you're always right and that you're the purveyor of uh solutions and insight in fact i i think one of the best parts about being an activist in this space is it's really like challenged my ego in the best way possible um it's made me so much more introspective nuanced i don't necessarily want to say humble because i don't know what humility humility looks like yet uh but it's made me so much more conscious of how I operate in public spaces and private spaces and yeah it's a good thing yeah well I love that answer it was fun we got a magic (laughs) wand I hope it comes true one day (laughs) and it has biodegradable glitter oh wow you just made it like even better love it to end us off what's one thing that listeners could do to help make your world a reality? And I'm kind of prefacing this question by saying, when I say your world, I mean one that is collectively just for everyone, not just, you know, Tories make-believe amazing world. Um, But yeah, what do you think we can do? I kind of mentioned it before, but just the act of leaning in, you know, how I was just like, okay, there are far too many people, and I get it, it's a huge privilege to be an organiser and an activist, but at the same time, I feel like there is a role for everyone, and there are things that lots of people care about, and I just want people to feel activated and to feel confident enough to know that they can be part of this, um, and to just lean in and listen. You know, leaning in doesn't necessarily mean taking up space, it means getting active, it means like organising, helping other people, listening, um planning and so on and so forth so that's that's one thing just yeah feel I feel like people need to feel empowered basically um and confident that they can make change I always say that there's always someone needed to make the cups of tea in meetings and that can be your role oh my gosh so (laughs) true I kind of want to um just like tag off of that in that one of my good friends is the caretaker in activist spaces like in sale to the cop and in sale for climate action they were the caretaker and none of the work would have been possible had they like not been there and i think that that's a testament to how important it is to have people who are kind and caring and looking out for one another um and i'm not saying that i'm a mean person (laughs) but i'm not nearly as like emotionally intelligent as this one person who's one of my good friends Kishona she is just so kind um and she inspires uh, inspires me to be a better person so yeah I love that I love you Kishona (laughs) shout out to all the lovely people who are caretakers and looking after everyone else it is such a worthwhile role I wouldn't be here without them like just putting that out there literally these people keep me afloat (laughs) thank you tori for joining me this has been a lovely conversation it's really like perked me up within this dark and gloomy period of time um and i hope people listening have also been perked up by you too thank you so much tolly it was a joy 
thank you so much once again for reaching the end of a full episode i hope you really enjoyed that conversation as always if you want to stay up to date with what i'm doing you can follow me on social media at at tomea which is spelled t-o-l-m-e-i-a and if you want to follow the podcast so that you can stay up to date with new episodes or reshare quotes and sound bites to share with your friends, then you can follow it on Twitter at IdealisticallyP and on Instagram at IdealisticallyPod. That is all from me. Please do rest up, look after yourselves and remember that there is power in people and another world is very much possible. Sound and editing by myself and music by Stowe Gregory. <laughs>